There was a movie I saw recently called A Walk in the Clouds. Anybody seen that? Good, good romantic, good romantic movie. The movie starred Keanu Reeves as a returning World War II soldier trying to start his life. Keanu's character abruptly married a woman, played by Deborah Messing, and just before he was deployed to the war. And when he returned home, his wife didn't meet him at the dock when the sailors pulled in. And he was perplexed. Why? that she would forget about him. So he made his way to their apartment in the city and they met and they embraced and he asked her an important question. Why didn't you read the letters that I sent to you? Did you, did you get them? And she said, no, I, I was afraid I was preoccupied. And she gave just blah, blah excuses. And he said, but I wrote you every day about our plans, our dreams, our goals in life. I wrote you every day because it kept me going until I came home to be with you. So she brought him over to the chest where she opened the chest and she showed him all the unopened letters that he wrote to her. And you could see a look of confusion on his face. Uh, and that his, her heart wasn't towards him and, and he couldn't figure out why. So the movie continues on to its plot where he covers for a pregnant woman by playing her husband to placate her family that she was involved with someone while away at college. And the story goes and they fall in love and etc. So I just ruined it for you, whoever wants to see it. Uh, in, a, in the same way, these are seven letters to seven churches that Jesus Christ wrote. They're love letters meant to convey our Savior's heart for us. His desire is, is that we have a deepening, abiding, loving relationship with him. So he wrote these letters to us as a way for him to express his heart to us, to express his plan, to correct us, to express his sovereign will and design to get us back into fellowship with him. Now, some of us don't really bother to open these letters. Some of us do. For those that, of you that are privileged to open these letters, you'll experience a newness of life in the spirit of God through Jesus, a new level of intimacy and peace with him. For those of you who don't, you're really missing out on what God has for you. And these seven letters that Jesus penned through the apostle John were located in Asia Minor near the Aegean Sea on an old Roman postal circuit route where they could easily be distributed. Jesus designed it that way for a purpose. Now, if you ask any Bible student how many epistles or letters are in the New Testament, he'll probably answer or she'll probably answer 21. There are 13 authored by Paul. And then you have Hebrews, which appears anonymous. But let's be honest. Paul probably wrote Hebrews, run on sentences. And, you know, you get you get the picture. Um Two and the seven general epistles by Peter, James, John, and Jude. However, we usually overlook the seven most important letters. The letters authored by Jesus personally. For many reasons, these seven letters comprise chapters two and three of the book of Revelation are probably the most important part of this book for you and me. <coughs> Excuse me. These letters give us four main levels of application, although I'm only going to focus on the church at Ephesus this morning. It has a local application. These were actual churches that Jesus was writing to in the first century. 
Each had good things going for it and each had problems. The second application is what's ecclesiastically. That's just a Greek word that means uh, gathered ones or it, it, it describes the church. It applies to the church, applies to all the local churches. So there are admonitions or problems. You can run the local church through the grid of these seven letters to see its problems and strengths. It has a personal application. These churches have a personal application to each of our lives and our walk with the Lord. And lastly, it has a prophetic application. One of the most amazing discoveries that you'll find is that each of these letters unfold church history uh, prophetically. And they describe the unfolding of church history for the past 2,000 years with remarkable precision. You'll also notice a specific structure in which Jesus writes these letters. Jesus starts by a dear Ephesus or a dear Smyrna, etc. And the meaning of the name of the church that is being addressed. Then Jesus describes himself in a title and in an aspect of his nature and character towards the church as it relates to this church and where they're at in their faith. And his character is meant to communicate something about himself as he writes to each church. And then Jesus commends the church for what they're doing well. Then Jesus gives a, re a rebuke or a correction where the church needs to repent and turn back to him. And he addresses issues in the church that need attention. Then Jesus exhorts the church to uh, motivate them on to greater faith in the particular situation that, that the, this, the, the particular church is in. Excuse me. Jesus then gives a promise to those that overcome which I'll talk about what that means as we get into the letter. Jesus ends the letters with, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now you'll notice that two of the letters, Smyrna and Philadelphia, have no criticisms brought upon them. It's all encouragement, but you'll notice that two of the letters, Sardis and Laodicea, have no commendation. And that's rather grim. Now why do I explain this if we're only going to focus on Ephesus? Because I hope that as we go along and that as we do this study, you'll go back and read these letters with a careful eye and a heart filled with God's spirit. So, so God's will can further in your life. Now, before we go further, I think it's important to understand the heart of the Apostle John in writing this letter because it re relates very much to you and me. First of all, John was endowed with the privilege of seeing Jesus in his humanity and in his glory. His humanity during his three and a half year ministry, his glory here in the book of Revelation in chapter one, he got to see both sides of Jesus. What a trip. And John wants us to view these letters in the same way. That he wants to see Jesus in all he wants us to see Jesus in all his glory with these letters. Second, look at Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. He tells these churches that I'm with you, I'm going through this difficult time of, pers of, of endurance with you. I'm your kingdom partner, and I'm also enduring with you in this difficult time of persecution. And we know by the early church father Tertullian. That Caesar Domitian attempted to boil John in a large pot of oil, but God miraculously delivered him. 
Domitian then exiled John on this little barren isle called Patmos in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. If you look at Patmos on Google Maps or whatever, you'll see that it's more of a resort town now. Uh, Now, don't miss this, brothers and sisters. John was alone on a God-forsaken island. He had no Bible, no guitar, no iPhone, no church. What did he do? What did he choose to do? It says there that today is the Lord's day, the Sabbath, and he chose to worship. Listen to me. If you're in a rough spot in life, if your circumstances are against you, your finances falling apart, you have no idea where you're going or where you're coming, your marriage is rocky, you have pressure at work, mentally you're in a bad place, you're depressed, and you have no hope, don't try to work your way out of it. Worship your way out of it. Choose to worship your great God and sovereign King who reigns over your circumstances. When I choose to worship despite my circumstances and my feelings, he meets me in that place and he becomes my refuge and my strength. When I worship, it puts my circumstances in perspective that God is using them to perform his word and his work so that he will be glorified when he delivers me and I will get the blessing. And when I choose to worship on, an, on my isolated, barren Patmos, what will he give me? What will he give you? He will give you the same thing he gave to the Apostle John, a revelation of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, worship him. Worship your way out of your circumstances. Now, the word Ephesus means desired one. Ephesus was a famous city in the ancient world with an equally famous church. Ephesus was the city where Paul ministered to for three years. Acts 19, Acts 10, Acts 20, verse 31. It was, it was the city where Aquila and Priscilla with Apollos ministered. It was the city where Paul's close associate, Timothy, actually became the pastor of. And according to strong and consistent church historical traditions, the Apostle John himself ministered there. Ephesus was also a world famous as a religious, cultural, religious, and economic center of the region. Ephesus had the notable temple of Diana, or the temple of Artemis, and a fertility goddess was worshipped there. This tremendous temple to Diana in Ephesus was regarded as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was actually supported by 127 pillars. Each pillar was 60 feet tall, and it was adorned with great sculpture. The Temple of Artemis was also a major treasury bank of the ancient world, where merchants, kings, and even cities made deposits, and where their money could be kept safe under the protection of the deity Diana. Ephesus, without a doubt, was a stronghold of Satan. And here, many evil things, both superstitious and satanic, were practiced. Books containing formula for sorceries and other ungodly and forbidden arts were very plentiful in Ephesus. With that bit of background, let's get into the letter. 
Look at verse 1 with me. Jesus writes, To the angel of the church of Ephesus, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the golden lampstand. Now the word Ephesus means desired one. I've even seen other uh, scholars uh, translate it little darling, ironically enough. It indicates that Jesus really desires this church. As far as the application of church history, this letter applies from A.D. 33 to about A.D. 100. The year John recorded this book, the church was already a mess. The book of Acts presents a model of the way the church was supposed to function, but Acts covers only a span of about 30 years. And by the time John penned Revelation, a mere 60 years later, the purity of the church had already been compromised to such a degree that they were in a position to hear the Lord say, unless you repent, I will not stay in your midst. Now notice Jesus addresses himself. He says the words, his words, and this is powerful. Don't miss this because how did God create everything? The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, Jesus gives you the meaning of the seven stars there in Revelation chapter one, verse 20. The word is angelos in the Greek, which can either be translated as angel or messenger. It can either, scholars differ on which, some, some say it's angels, some say it's a, the actual pastor of the church. Do your own study and come to your own conclusion. And by the way, Acts 17.11 says that you shouldn't believe anything that I tell you, but that you should search the scriptures to see whether these things are so. The fact that Jesus holds these stars or messengers in his hands means that he's working through them to perform his word in his church. And notice it also says, Jesus says, who walks amongst the seven golden lampstands. Lampstands are churches. And we see that in Revelation 1.12. Jesus tells you what the lampstands are. Walking and he's walking in the midst of the churches. In fact, Revelation 1 says, that Jesus is dressed in the garment of a priest and he has a sash around his chest, kind of over his shoulder and then this way, and it covers his heart. And it's a golden sash, which means purity. Gold always speaks of purity in the Bible and it covers his heart. Do you know that everything that Jesus does or allows in your life is done with love? Now, we don't necessarily understand or like it, but know that everything that Jesus does in your life is done from a place of love. He's not apart from the churches, but here Revelation describes he's right in the middle of them. The term walk in the Bible also refers to fellowship. In Genesis, we see Adam and Eve walking with God in the cool of the day. Brothers and sisters, that's what we were designed for. 1 Corinthians 1.9 is one of the most overlooked scriptures in the Bible. It says this, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you want to know what you're called to in life, if you want to know what it is, if you want to break it down in its simplest component, this is it. 
You are called to have fellowship with God. Lord, show me what career I'm supposed to pursue. Well, come fellowship with me and I'll show you. Lord, show me what husband or wife you have for me. Well, come fellowship with me and I'll show you. Come fellowship with me and I'll show you and direct you and where you must go. But your primary calling in your life is to hang out with God. Isn't that simple? Doesn't that just make, doesn't that just free you up? That's your priority. Jesus said it this way in John 17, three, he says, and this is eternal life that they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, you were created to know God. Look at verse two. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. So Jesus is commending them. He sees what's going on in the church. He knows what they're going through. He says, I know what you're doing. I know your works. I know how you're laboring. I know you're out there sharing the gospel, encouraging people, helping others. I see that you have a desire to do the work of ministry. And that's a good thing. Family, understand that God sees your work for him. Now, nothing that you do for Jesus is ever in vain, ever. It may seem to you that you're not gaining any traction or you're not seeing the results of your effort, but no, it's not in vain. God sees what you do for him and it is valuable to him as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know your labor is not in vain in the Lord. We had a uh, growing up in high school in San Diego, California, that's where I'm from. Um, we had a lady who went to our church and she had a pie ministry. She would bake pies for people that were, would move into the neighborhood. And she on purpose baked those pies in a glass dish. Why? Because she would have to go back and get them. Do you know how many people came to saving faith in Jesus as a result of that pie ministry? It's incredible. Nothing you do for the Lord is in vain. Everything you do is important to Jesus, no matter how small. And he knows your toil. He knows you're working hard. It reminds me of when Jesus called his disciples in Luke 5. Peter was worn out from fishing all night, not catching a thing. Something a commercial fisherman would be highly discouraged. And then Jesus comes along with a few thousand people and sees Peter's boat. He borrows it. He proceeds to, to teach about the kingdom of God. And Peter, being tired and discouraged, probably thought it was an encouraging message. Well, after the Bible study, Jesus says to Peter, Hey, Pete, grab your net and get in your boat and go out a little deeper this time. This went against all conventional wisdom. Jesus, you didn't go to fishing school, okay? You don't understand. You don't fish during the day. It's hot. The waters are warmer at the top. The fish don't rise. Come on, man, really? And you want me to go out deeper? This doesn't make any sense. Well, Peter objected, and he goes out anyway. And as a result, 
of Jesus' command, they caught so much fish, other boats had to come and help them. I think Jesus works in us the same way he did with Peter. He allows us to get really tired, really worn out, discouraged. He waits until we're out of resources and we come to the end of ourselves. Then, at Jesus' command, he sends us out and we bring in a haul, a huge blessing. All the while, we look at the blessing Jesus just brought us, and then we look at Jesus realizing the blessing is not the blessing. The blessing is Jesus himself. See, they could have made a windfall on all that fish, but they left it. The Bible says they left it all, and they followed Jesus. When you come to the end of yourself, when you come to the end of yourself, you come to the beginning of God. Billy Graham. And, how, and Jesus says, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. Jesus sees they cannot bear, bear evil. They don't tolerate it. They don't compromise with it. In fact, it shows the Ephesians don't like it. They're repelled by it. There's a clear distinction between them and those of the world. So the church in America is so lost because it is compromised with the world. And if you're truly born again, if you truly have the spirit of God, then you will hate what is evil and love what is good. And then Jesus goes on to say, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Man, these guys, they, they were on it doctrinally. They had it all. They had all the T's crossed and all the I's dotted. Jesus loves the fact that they tested those who come into the church and declare themselves to be of spiritual authority from God. Man, they, they had their radar up. They stood guard over the church to protect it. Jesus commends them for this. Doctrine is important. It matters. And for those of you who study your Bibles, you know this to be true. Jesus loves that you're always on the lookout because the Spirit has trained you in the Word. Now beware of people who come into the church and give themselves titles and declarations of spiritual authority. I mean, Kirk wanted to be called Right Reverend, but we wouldn't let him. <laughs> Man, this is an easy crowd, I tell you. This is good. It usually means they're not. It usually means that they're in it for themselves and not to serve the people of God. And this church knew their Bibles and they submitted to God's word as authoritative so well they could spot a counterfeit a mile away. My wife Tara said something to me the other day that really blew me away and I'm still thinking on it. She was recalling to me how one of her colleagues had moved into this new agey, transcendental meditation, astral projection type of spirituality. Tara said this, you know, it's interesting how people seek meaning more than they seek truth. Let me say that again. It's interesting how people seek meaning more than they seek truth. Be very careful, church, that you don't seek meaning outside the finished work of Jesus Christ and his cross. For if you seek the truth in Jesus, you will find meaning. 
Because after all, in John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. See, Jesus doesn't just speak truth. He is the truth. Verse three, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. The Ephesians went strong for about 40 years. In fact, in an emotional farewell uh, in Miletus in Acts 20, Paul sent for the Ephesian elders. This is before he went down to Jerusalem where he thought he was going to die. And it was a very, it's a very touching scene if you've never read it. And in verse 26, Paul warns the Ephesian elders this. He says this, Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I taught you the entire scripture, Paul says. Then he says this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers and care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. This is the key right here. For I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after themselves. The Ephesians took Paul seriously and acted as stalwarts to any false, anything that was false that contradicted the word of God or the gospel. Now watch this. This is the rebuke in in verse four. Jesus says this, but I have this against you that you have abandoned or left the love you had at first. What was once passion for the Ephesians turned into passivity? What was once motivation turned into going through the motions? What was once love turned into religion? The Ephesians themselves were in awe of God and the gospel in the beginning. They were once motivated by God's love and grace for them. But now these second generation believers were just kind of going through the motions, no real zeal or awe of God himself. The motivation for their lives was no longer Jesus himself. It was for the works they were doing for him. They were trying to find their meaning and worth and value through what they could accomplish versus what Christ had accomplished for them. Does this describe you? Have you forgotten the gospel? Are you going through the motions and have you missed the simplicity of just being with Jesus? Just being with him, his love for you, his grace toward you. Are you like that husband who works 70 hours a week and neglects his family until his wife approaches him and says, you're working way too much. We need you. The kids miss you. We want you to spend time with us to where the husband replies, I'm working hard to give you all the stuff and all the good things of life. Missing the complete and total point. When I was 16 years old, growing up in Southern California, my dad was a successful manager uh, at U.S. Air. He'd climbed the corporate ladder. He was really good at what he did. My mom, Robin, was a wildly successful artist in San Diego. She was in every San Diego magazine every month for some work that she did. Uh, works of art that she did in multi-million dollar homes, government buildings, malls, beach structures. I mean, we were a well-to-do family. 
My, my dad bought a Porsche 911 in 1989, and I hated it when he used to make me wash it. And, you know, when I, when I did wash it, I would just kind of suds it up, just kind of, you know, whatever, just do the minimal amount that I could do so I could get it done as quick as possible and go hang out with my buddies and go to the beach. Then I met a girl. And I was smitten. And I was telling my dad about it. And he said, do you want to take her out in the Porsche? I was like, yes. 18 years old? Yeah. <laughs> so he said, well, you got to wash it. and You got to clean it. Man, I scrubbed every inch. I washed it, put two coats of wax, vacuumed it, rubbed armor all over the dash, cleaned all the dust, vacuumed the carpets. Man, the car was looking sharp, boy, let me tell you. And, and when you got in it, it smelled fruity. It was smelling so good. Now, why was I willing to go the extra mile? It was love. It was love. And that's what Jesus means here to the church at Ephesus. Some of you just going through the motions. Because you've left your first love for something you think that would give you more. If you're looking for more outside of Jesus, then you're looking for less than Jesus. And what was once a vibrant, spirit-filled love for Jesus, it's just kind of stale. You're not a human doing. You're a human being. Jesus doesn't need you or me to do stuff for him. His desire is that you just be with him. He wants a relationship. He wants you to survey the cross and look how much grace he has towards you. The real difference is this. Religion is trying to please God based on your own efforts. It'll never work how hard you try. In fact, Martin Luther used to beat himself relentlessly. He would sleep outside in freezing temperatures. He would go to confession 25, 30 times a day, and the priest would retort back to him, Martin, come back when you have something to confess. Luther was so haunted about wanting to be righteous before God, he actually sought to have an audience with the Pope at Rome. So on his way there, he fell really ill where some monks in Switzerland, I think it was Switzerland, took him in and the and one of the priests or one of the monks saw the anguish in his soul and he said, Martin, you need to read the book of Habakkuk. He, he, he was struggling with many of the same things you are. So Luther being sick started reading Habakkuk and he comes to that verse, Habakkuk chapter two, verse four, where it says, the just shall live by faith. And then the light bulb went on for him. The Reformation was sparked in his heart. He all of a sudden realized, it's not what I do for Jesus. It's what he's already done for me. I'm not righteous on my own works and merit. I'm righteous on his work and merit. I'm saved on the basis of his grace and mercy, not on how well I perform. It's by Jesus' merit and accomplishment that gives me right standing with God. God has declared me righteous because but I believe by faith in what Jesus has done for me. And when I believe that there's no more striving, no more effort, I'm in awe of him. I then have right motivation 
because I'm moved with gratitude and love for him who made me right with himself through his cross. As Tim Keller likes to say, I am not accepted if I obey. I obey because I'm already accepted. So, remember, Jesus says in verse 5, therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you. Ooh, this is, this is a heavy word. I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So Jesus tells the Ephesians, remember where you have fallen. Where did you fall off track? He, in a sense, he tells them, think back to the last time that you just had this love for Jesus. When you were passionate about him. Remember the time and you reflect on the gospel and you return to the Lord. Think about where you fell off track. To repent means to change your mind. He says in Psalm 77, 11, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. Deuteronomy 6, 12, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He's telling his people to remember what he's done. And Jesus commands, do the works you did at first. Do the works you did at first. Turn away from whatever has pulled you away from Christ and turn back to Christ. Something has drawn you away from Jesus. You're attached to something more than you are to Christ. Something is consuming your thoughts and your energies and keeping your mind from focusing upon Christ, fellowshipping and communing with him. You are not centering your mind to him in prayer as you walk throughout the day. You are not sharing and communing with him like you once did. Something has replaced him in your thoughts and your attention. And the more attached to that thing that you are to Christ, you need to repent and turn away from that attachment and turn back to Christ. And he says, if not, I will remove your lampstand, your church, your position, your place, you may have lots of programs and lots of activities, he says to the Ephesian church. You may even have doctrinal purity. But Jesus will not stay in a church where there is not love. Because even if you have doctrinal purity, but you don't have love, what is it worth? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 2, that it's like, a, like the gong show. Clanging brass, annoying. It's just annoying. Did you see that Babylon Bee article the other day where it says, I'm a miserable wretch, says a Calvinist smugly. I'm not picking on Calvinists. I love Reformed theology. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying. Family, this is dangerous. We need to take this serious. The church in America is on life support. Let's not be Christians that just go through the motion, but let's get back to the main thing. A love for Christ. Then Jesus commends them once more in verse 6. <clears throat> Yet this you have. <clears throat> you hate the work, the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, Nicolaitans were apparently a sect in the church that was neither pure in doctrine or love, 
The word, it comes from two Greek words. The word nikos or, or Nike, you heard that word, Nike, means to conquer or to rule over. The word laity means the people. So these Nicolaitans were ruler over the people. There was a movement in the 70s of Christian hippie communes called shepherding movements. These communes had leaders who told you how much to tithe, who to date, what car to drive, what job you could have, what coffee you could drink, and they ruled over every aspect of your life as a Christian. If you didn't obey the leaders, you were considered apostate and made to work your way back into their good graces. Fortunately, uh, there were a lot of good leaders that, that shut these ministries down. Their standards were so high that not even Jesus could meet them. And this is what Jesus hates. Having lordship or ruling over people in a place of power. Gee, it sounds like Putin, doesn't it? (laughs) Putin is a Nicolaitan. He's a modern day Nicolaitan. Jesus hates it and he commends the Ephesian elders for standing against them. The church is meant to be a place of grace and freedom. And when we subtly begin to control people around us through manipulation or where we use the Bible as a weapon to serve our political agenda, means to get what we want, it's not good. Family, the Lord commends us for standing against legalism. People who want to tear down and divide the body, that's a good thing. A story was told some years ago of a pastor who found the roads blocked one Sunday morning and was forced to skate on the river to get to church, which he did. When he arrived, the elders of the church were horrified that the preacher had skated on the Lord's day. After the service, they held a meeting where the pastor explained that it was either skate to church or not go at all. Finally, the elder asked, well, did you enjoy it? And the preacher preacher answered, no. And then the board decided it was okay. (laughs) You see how ridiculous this all gets when we we start to control, when we start to act on the basis of our own merit. And we, we go deeper and deeper into this legalistic thing that just, there's no freedom in it. It's just dead. It's just dead works. And so the works that Jesus wants us to have are works motivated by love. Back to the illustration of, the, of washing my dad's Porsche. Man, those are mature works in Christ. Now you're not doing it because you have to. You're doing it because you get to. Do you see the difference? Verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers... I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. How many in this room have an ear? Okay, that's everybody. Who is Jesus speaking to? So, he gave us two ears and one mouth. Which does he want us to use more? And the Bible says, be quick, be, be slow to speak and quick to listen. I think that's in James. And he says, let him hear what the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, catch this, the Holy Spirit says to the churches. It's the Spirit talking to the churches. And I know in some denominational circles, it's the Father, Son, and the Holy Bible. 
but it's the spirit. We must embrace the Holy Spirit, receive him, be filled with him. Not not charismaniacs, but charisma. Being filled with the power of the spirit to be able to live this life out. And in order to understand God's will and his word, you have to be filled with his spirit. Paul says so. He says this in 1 Corinthians 2, 13 through 16. These things we also speak not in words of man's wisdom. Uh, these things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Ladies and gentlemen, you can't understand this book without the leading of the Holy Spirit. You can't. You cannot discern the will of God without being filled with the Spirit. And this is the token charismatic guy talking in Hill City. So, get a little excited. But when he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But watch what Paul says. But we have the mind of Christ. Are you kidding me? He's given us the mind of Christ, the way he thinks, the revelation of God to himself. And granted, we're still in this sinful, rotting piece of meat called the flesh. But someday we will see him as he is. And we will know those things because he will impart them to us. To the one who conquers, he says, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So this is the question. What does Jesus mean here when he says to the one who conquers? How do you conquer in keeping your love for Jesus? Is this something that I have to strive to do? Is this something I must attain? How do I conquer? The answer lies in 1 John 5, 4 and 5. Listen very carefully. For everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. And this is the victory that has conquered the world. Nikos in the Greek. Our faith. Who is it that conquers the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? How do you conquer? You just put your faith in Jesus. Because Jesus even told us, fear not for I have overcome or I have conquered the world. Man, that's a relief. That's a relief. Now watch this. The tree of life is mentioned in Genesis 3.22. It's the tree that gives life. That's why God banished Adam and Eve from the garden after the fall. God wouldn't allow them to eat this tree of life in a state of death. But the one who conquers or has faith in Jesus, he will give them access to the tree of life and the new heavens and the new earth. And do you know that in the book of Revelation, there's the tree of life? But guess what, what tree is missing? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not there anymore. Because we've chosen by God's grace. There was a drunkard husband spending every evening with his jovial companions at a tavern. And this guy boasted that if he took a group of his friends home with him at midnight 
and asked his wife, who was a believer, to get up and cook supper for them, she would do it without complaint. The crowd considered it a vain boast, but dared him to do it. So the drunken crowd followed him home, and he woke up his wife and made the unreasonable demand, get up and cook us supper. So she got up, she dressed, she came down and prepared a very nice meal and served it as cheerfully as if she had been expecting them. Now, after the supper, one of the men asked her how she could be so kind when they had been so unreasonable and when she did not approve of their conduct. Her reply was simple. She said, sir, when my husband and I were married, we were both sinners. It has pleased God to call me out of this dangerous condition. My husband continues in it and I tremble for his eternity. Were he to die as he is, he would be miserable forever. And I think it my duty to render his present existence as safe and as comfortable as possible. Her husband heard that and started to weep and received Christ. The Ephesians left their love for Jesus. So do we. But the beautiful truth is the radical truth. Jesus never leaves his love for you. Where we get distracted, he remains focused. Where we cower, he remains brave. Where we are faithless, he remains faithful. Where we avoid suffering and pain, he set his face, as it says in Isaiah, like a flint towards Jerusalem, towards pain and suffering. Where we are full of activity without love, he is full of love and activity. Let's return to our first love. Let's return to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this letter. Correct us where we need to be corrected. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Lord, bring us back to that simpler time when we first met you. Where the world just faded away. Where we're not distracted by phones and social media and Netflix and uh, all the things that surround us, all the trappings where we just rest in you. Spark us, stir our affections for you, Lord, so that we can rightly praise you. We can rightly share with others about you. Lord, we desire you. Be our chief desire. Turn us into Christian hedonists, as John Piper likes to say, where all we do is just think about you and love you. In Jesus' name, amen.